Last Sunday, a week ago today, I was boarding a plane in Springfield, Missouri to fly through Atlanta, Georgia to land in Syracuse, New York at about midnight Sunday night. And uh, as I got on the plane in Springfield, I saw what every traveler prays they will see when they get on planes. Lots of empty seats. I could tell this was not a full flight. And so I sat down, and my friend that was traveling with me sat next to me, but quickly we realized we don't need to sit so close to each other. And so I strongly encouraged him to move to a different row. And the stewardess came by and pointed something out to us that I thought was helpful. She said, you are sitting in rows where the seats don't recline. So you may want to move back a row, which they were also empty. So I was very grateful for that. So before the plane took off, we relocated behind one row back, and we sat on the plane. And uh, you're not supposed to recline until you're a certain height in the air. And so I sat in the seat, and we took off. And right when I heard that ding, which means you can recline, I pushed the button, and I went like this. And I'm pushing on my seat, and it's not reclining. And I realized my seat's broken. She moved me to a row where the seat doesn't recline. And I just got to say, I started to get really, like, I started to complain. Like, I started to get upset about my situation. Here I am, sitting in a plane, and my seat won't recline. How am I supposed to possibly travel? Like, what kind of world am I, am I living in? Now, in that moment, let me just uh, list for you the things that I lost sight of, the things that I forgot. I forgot for a moment that I was sitting in my own row. I wasn't crammed between people. I, was, I had my own personal fan to blow air on me, and I had my own personal light so I could read. Uh, I had snacks. You know, they're giving me snacks. As pathetic as those little bags of pretzels are, they still were giving me snacks. I was flying using a ticket that I didn't pay for. I was traveling with someone who's been a good friend of mine for 19 years. I was leaving an amazing weekend of ministry where I had seen hundreds of students respond to the gospel. I had experienced the best apple fritter I've ever tasted in my life that weekend at St. George Donuts on East Sunshine Street in Springfield, Missouri. And I was heading home to a family that I love very much, and I was sitting in a metal tube going 900 miles an hour, 30,000 feet in the air, and I wasn't afraid for my life. Those are some pretty significant things. The plane, the plane was turning an 11-hour drive, a 17-hour train ride, a 60-hour bike ride, which I never would have survived, and a 218-hour walk into a 90-minute flight. But because my seat wouldn't move back six inches, I was grumbling in my heart. I was complaining. Now, before you judge me, <laughs> we're like this, aren't we? You're standing in Wegmans. Beautiful, fresh produce, perfectly vacuum-sealed steak, food from all over the world. But because they ran out of your favorite brand of cookie dough ice cream, (laughs) you're losing your salvation in the frozen food section. (laughs) Or another example, uh, we're we're in a first world country, right, where we don't worry, we don't don't have fear about where we're going to get clean water from. We know where we're going to get clean water from, from anywhere that we really want, But when we go and our barista makes our latte with real milk instead of the soy milk or the almond milk that we requested, we start to grumble and question their abilities. Uh, We hold more data and information in our hands right now than was available in the entire world about 100 years ago. But when the internet connection is poor, oh, we're not fun to be around. And then once the connection gets strong again, we get on social media so that we can complain about how bad the internet connection was. This morning, we're in our second to last week in our series entitled From Slavery 
to Sinai. We've been going through the first 20 chapters of Exodus, and this morning we find ourselves in chapters 16 and 17. And what we're going to see as we look at the Israelites and we study their lives is that here's the big idea for this morning. A forgetful heart is a complaining heart. A forgetful heart is a complaining heart. When we forget, when we fail to remind ourselves of what's most important, when we fail to remember the right things, we complain, we grumble, and we whine, and it's a bigger deal than you might think. In fact, in the New Testament, when we look at how the writers in the New Testament deal with and address this grumbling, complaining spirit in the people of Israel, this is what we learn, two things. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says that the attitude of their hearts kept them from entering into the rest that God had for them. Is it possible that our tendency to complain is preventing us from entering into the rest that God has for us? And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.10, he says that because of their grumbling, they were destroyed by the destroyer. So you're talking about not entering into what God has for you and being destroyed by the destroyer simply because we complain? It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But it is. And a forgetful heart is a complaining heart. There are some things that you and I simply cannot afford to forget. Now we're going to look at chapter 16 and 17, and we're going to see three short stories from the Israelites' time in the wilderness. And we're going to look at three things this morning that we must remember. We must remember how he set us free. We must remember how he sustains us. And we must remember how he saves us. Okay? How he set us free, how he sustains us, and how he saves us. Let's look first at the idea that we must remember how he set us free. Now, real quickly, to recap where we've been in the last seven weeks, here's what the Israelites have seen. They've seen that Moses' life as a baby was miraculously preserved, and he was raised up and trained in Pharaoh's own house to be a deliverer for the people of Israel. Then we see that God sends Moses back through a miraculous encounter in the desert, and then God begins to demonstrate his superiority over all the gods of Egypt through the act of the ten plagues. God then delivers his people from Egypt, and they leave out of Egypt to see Exodus. And they don't just leave sort of escaping. They leave as a victorious people leave, having plundered the Egyptians. Then God provides a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Rob talked to us about the parting and the crossing of the Red Sea. And I think we would all agree, these are pretty unforgettable things, right? These are events worth remembering. Recently, I heard my friend Heath Adamson say in a sermon, sometimes what is unforgettable can be forgotten. And that's what happens. Let's look at Exodus chapter 16, the, verse, the first three verses. This is right on the heels of everything that they've just seen. It says, beginning in verse 1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of sin. Now, that's probably your first clue that things aren't going to go great when something is named the wilderness of sin. It was not most likely named the wilderness of sin when they went into it. This is one of those situations where it gained this name because of the way that they lived while they were here, and later it was referred this way. And this is how people knew of it when they read this later. So they, they came into the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, And the whole congregation of the people, everybody grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to him, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord. Now hold on. They had just been delivered by the hand of the Lord from the land of Egypt. 
And now they're saying, we would rather have died by his hand in the land of Egypt. When we, and here's they begin to describe what they seem to remember their situation to be or have been. When we sat by the meat pots, piles of meat, and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they're accusing Moses and Aaron basically of genocide. Now, in this verse, we see four characteristics of a complaining heart. And the first characteristic in a complaining heart is this. We're comparing our lives with other people's lives. We're always comparing ourselves with others. Or we're comparing our circumstances with somebody else's circumstances. We're saying, I wish I had that. I wish this would happen to me. I wish I was there. I wish I was that person. I wish I had that marriage. I wish I had that job. And we compare ourselves to other people. But we don't know, it's not just that. We also compare our present with our past. I wish things were like they used to be. We compare our present with the future. I sure hope things in the future are much different than they are today. Teddy Roosevelt was famous for saying, comparison is the thief of joy. But I would add that comparison is the thief of thankfulness. Comparison is the thief of gratitude. And it's worse today with social media, right? Because every time you scroll through your Facebook feed or Twitter or Instagram, you have the opportunity to compare yourself with them. But here's the problem. Social media is the highlight reel, right? It's the highlight reel of people's lives. You're sitting there on your couch in your jammies with your hair not done, eating out of a carton of ice cream, and you're looking at these pictures of people that, you know, who knows how many attempts it took them to get that selfie just the way it is. But we compare our lives with these highlight reel uh, shots from their lives, and it steals our joy and it steals our thankfulness. We always lose when we compare. Because when we have more than someone else, we look down on them. And we aren't really grateful for what we have. We're simply grateful that we have more of it than the person next to us. Uh, If we think we're better than someone else when we compare them, then we judge them or we complain about the way they live their lives. Don't they know better? Why can't they be more like me? If we think that we are worse than them, then we're filled with insecurities and and anxiety. And if we think we have less than they have, then we envy. And we ask questions like, why do they have all that? And what have they done to deserve all of that? And we're trying to get everything that everybody else has because we're in this uh, loop of comparison. I don't know if you've ever seen a kid uh, who's trying to get all the toys in the room off the ground. I've seen my daughters do this. They have all their Disney dolls scattered all over the place, and so they fill their arms up with as many as humanly possible for a five-year-old to carry, but then they see one more. It's like, oh, Moana. I got to get Moana. And so they run over to grab Moana, but in bending over to pick up Moana, Ariel and Cinderella fall out. And then they look over here, and next thing you know, like, they keep looking around, and they're like, what kind of sorcery is this? Why are, there just, uh, why are these princesses just appearing? And sometimes we're like that. We're just running around saying, I'll take some of that from their life, and I'll take some of that from their life, and we're running around trying to fill up our arms, and we're losing things in the process. So we lose when we compare. The second characteristic of a complaining heart is this. We exaggerate our problems. We exaggerate our problems They said that they were going to die of starvation. That's what they said, right? You're going to kill us with hunger. You're going to starve us to death. They were not in danger of starving to death. They may have been hungry, but they were not going to starve to death. Well, how do we know that? In the very next chapter, it references the livestock that they have with them. 
They didn't find that livestock waiting for them in the wilderness. They brought that livestock with them out of Egypt. So they had options. I mean, they, you ever, I remember being a kid, my mom will flash back to this, walking into the house, looking in the fridge and going, Mom, we have nothing to eat. <laughs> and uh, actually, we were having this conversation, Aaron and I, last night over text, because one of my daughters, I won't say who, uh, but one of my daughters uh, was complaining that there was nothing to eat in the house. And I came up with this brilliant, brilliant parenting strategy. I said, give her a piece of paper, give her a pen, and make her write down every edible thing in our house. Make her go through the fridge, make her go through the cupboards, and write down everything she can eat. We didn't do it, but we got it in our back pocket if we ever really need it. (laughs) This is what's happening here. They're saying there's nothing to eat, and what they're saying is what we used to eat, we don't have out here. You're going to starve us to death. They're exaggerating their problems, and we're like that, and especially if it's my problem. Your problems, I feel bad for you, but my problems, it's a really big deal. And they loom large in our eyes and in our hearts because they are so close to us, right? Humor me for a moment and make a fist with your right hand. Make a fist with your right hand. All right, now hit your knee. No, I'm just kidding. Make a fist with your right hand. Now hold it up to your nose pretty close, all right? Now turn and look at the person next to you. Okay, Your, your fist, your fist is bigger than their face when you look at it that way because of its proximity to you. Now, in reality, your fist probably is not bigger than their face. And so when, when things are so close to us, they loom large. They seem bigger than they are. I, I've learned this past weekend, I was reminded this past weekend, I took a picture with my friend that I was traveling with to Springfield. He took a little selfie to send to somebody, and I made the mistake of being a closer to the camera than him. And the reason why that's a mistake is because I have a pretty large head. Like the circumference of my head is unusually large. I, I have a struggle finding fitted hats that actually fit my head but he has kind of like a little pea of a head. And so it, there's, already, there's already a discrepancy. But then put me a foot in front of his head, it was terrible. I looked like a monster. And he, he, he looked like a little angel sitting on my, my shoulder. So I was taking a picture a couple of days later, and I, I stayed back. I made sure that other people's heads were in front of me in the picture so that my head would look normal size compared to theirs. When something is close to you, it looks larger. Our problems are so close to us that we exaggerate them, and we think that they're worse. They appear more significant than anything else in the room or anything else in the world that's happening. But of course they aren't. The other thing that happens in a complaining heart is not only do we compare, not only do we exaggerate our problems, but we romanticize our options. We romanticize our options. We, the grass is greener, right? We, we think everything else is better. And that's what happens here. They're thinking back to Egypt and they're going, man, we used to sit by piles of meat and piles of bread. They're basically describing Texas Day Brazil, like a Brazilian steakhouse, saying people were coming to our tables and carving out pieces of ribeye for us and lamb chops, and we were just, I mean, we had all the meat we could eat. For some of you, that is reminiscent of your Thanksgiving experience. You know it wasn't like that, though, right? Because they were crying out desperately for deliverance for 400 years. And I don't know about you, but if I'm surrounded by piles of meat and piles of bread, the last thing I'm asking for is deliverance. I just want something to drink as I eat all the meat, right? They're crying out. And here's the thing. They had forgotten how bad it was. They were romanticizing their options. They they had envy of, of something that wasn't real, something that wasn't true. And a lot of us, we set our hopes on things that aren't real. They're a mirage. They seem to be real, but they're not. And when we're in the middle of complaining, we romanticize our options. Okay, and the fourth thing here in a complaining heart is 
A complaining heart doesn't trust God. It says in the text that they brought their grumbling and complaining against Moses and Aaron. But if you read to verse 7 of the chapter, Moses points out to them, your complaining is not against us. Your complaining is against the Lord. All grumbling, all complaining is ultimately against the Lord. They were taking things out on Moses. This is called displacement. They were taking things out on Moses. They were taking things out on Aaron, but they were really angry with God. They're saying, God, you're not fair. God, you're not just. God, you're not seeing us. God, you're not providing for us. A complaining spirit, whether you're complaining about the temperature of your coffee or you're complaining about how your neighbor takes care of their lawn, a complaining spirit always indicates a problem in our relationship with God. It's not just a problem in our relationship with each other, but it always indicates a lack of trust in God. This is really important. Think about this. In Egypt, what was the relationship of the Israelites and Pharaoh based on? It was based on, I'm going to use the word transaction. It was based on a transaction. And here's, here was a transaction. The Israelites said, we will, we, we will be your slaves. Now, I know they didn't have much of a choice in it, but there still is a transaction. We will work for you. You can own us. We will endure your beatings. We will construct your ziggurats and your pyramids. As long as you feed us, you're going to keep feeding us because you need us. You're going to feed us meat and bread because you need us to have strength because tomorrow we have to get up and do it all over again. And so they had this transaction. It was slavery, but you know what else it was? It was predictable. It was safe. It was reliable. And this is true of anything in your life that you make your Pharaoh, your God, your false idol. You go to it and you have a transaction-based relationship with it. So you go to those drugs or to that drink or to that pleasure or whatever you go to to escape. And you say, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you this part of me, but in exchange, you give me escape. And it will, right? It works. It's a transaction. It's predictable. You know what you're going to get. Or you say, I'm going to give to my career all of my time, all of my effort, my own integrity. I'm going to lay my family on the altar of career. And you know what? Most of the time, it actually works. It's a transaction. You give everything you have, and it gives you success and wealth and notice and notoriety. Or if you say, what, what I really love and respect, or what I really love and crave is the respect of others. And so I'm going to live a certain type of life to get all their respect, whether it's a very moral life or a very religious life or a very ethical life. And you know what? It often works. You live in that way and you're going to get it. This is true of false gods. It's a transaction. But in the wilderness, here's what's happening, and don't miss this. Their relationship with God is not based on a transaction. It's based on trust. God is calling us away from an approach of transaction to an approach of trust. Here's what I'm saying. If you're in this, and by this I mean the Christian faith, if you're in this for what you can get out of it, you're not actually in it at all. If you're in it for what you think you can get out of it, you're not actually in it at all. You have a transaction relationship with something. And Jesus and the Christian faith is simply useful to get to that thing. But when you see God for who he is and you begin to trust him and you realize that he is my reward, he is my treasure. He's not useful. He's beautiful. And it changes the way we approach God. And we move from transaction to trust. Now, how does God respond to all this grumbling? How would you and I have responded? We would be like, do you remember? Have you forgotten? Let me take you back for 20 minutes and put you under the whip of an Egyptian slave master and then come back and tell me you had it better. 
Have you forgotten that you walked through dry land and you saw the wall? Have you forgot? Start slapping them around, right? That's what we would do. But what does God do? He responds by meeting their need. Now, we have to be careful with this because this is not teaching us to grumble and complain before God. This simply is to show us, look at how faithful and gracious our God is. This is about him, not about them. He's gracious, and he provides what's called manna. Manna is this white, flaky, honey-flavored type wafer that just shows up on the ground. And they go out every morning. The word manna literally means, what is it? Because they walk down and they go, what is it? And then for the rest of the next 40 years, they always called it, what is it? Which was the word manna. And God provides this for them. Now we learn something here about God's provision that we need to trust not just his provision, but his plan. Because he gives them a very specific set of instructions. He says, every morning I want you to go out and collect just enough for your family to eat. Now this manna became a staple of their diet, but it wasn't the only thing they ate. They ate other things, but this kind of became a staple, like rice is a staple of many Asian cuisines. And so he said, every morning, go out and collect enough for your family, bring it into your house, but only enough for that day. Don't double up. Trust me, it's going to be there tomorrow. And then tomorrow, go out and get more. Now, what do you think they did? What would we do? Ah, you know, just grab as much as you can. They're like filling your pockets, filling all your bags, filling all your cupboards. But what happened was anything they kept overnight, it spoiled, it, it went rotten, and it stunk. But then on Saturday, God said, on Saturday, uh, or, or on the day before the Sabbath, I should say, collect double because I don't want you going out and working on the Sabbath. I want you to enter into the rest, the rhythm of creation. He's inviting them into Sabbath, really even before the giving of the commandments. So what do they do? Some of them are, are stupid in both ways. They go out the day before the Sabbath, and they only gather enough for that day. And then they walk out the next morning, and they're like, what? Where did it all go? What we're learning here is that God is saying, not only will I provide for you, and not only am I asking you to trust my provision, but I'm asking you to trust my plan. Trust the way in which I'm going to provide for you what you need. Now, this is much harder. It's very easy for us to say, God, I know that you're going to give me everything that I need. Your word says that you give us everything that we need. But here's, here's the problem for you and me. God gets to define what we need. And God gets to decide how he provides it. And that's not always as thrilling to our hearts as the idea of having our needs met. And what I love about this is that every morning when they woke up, they walked outside and every morning they had a reminder of God's faithfulness. His mercies knew every morning. They would walk out. I imagine them waking up early in the morning and going, I wonder if the man is there again. I wonder if it's there today. My belly's hungry. I need my Wheaties for breakfast. I wonder if it's there. And they walk out. And every morning, listen to this, for 40 years, every morning, for 40 years, God faithfully met their needs. Now, let me just give us some questions to reflect upon before I go to the second point. What reminds you every morning of God's faithfulness? You need something. How are you positioning yourself every morning to be reminded of God's faithfulness? It could be time in the scripture. It could be listening to a sermon as you drive to work. It could be reading through a devotional book. But I'm telling you, we're no different than the Israelites. We need a reminder every single morning that he's faithful, that he did it again, that again, his mercies are new. And here's another sort of next step question for those of you that are leaders. Who are you reminding every morning? First thing you should be doing if you're married is reminding your spouse. If you have kids, you should be reminding, find a way every morning to remind your children of God's faithfulness and his goodness to them. 
But beyond that, who are you discipling? Who are you pouring your life to? Who are you shooting? I have some friends that as I've walked through this past year of, of lots of grief and loss, that they have faithfully in the morning sent me texts of scripture verses and little pictures with phrases on it. Just reminding, they care about me enough to remind my heart in the morning, he's faithful. He'll do it again. He did it again. Who are you doing that for? Maybe one next step for you after this morning's message is to identify someone in your life that you want to do that for. You want to be that person who reminds them, reminds them of the faithfulness of God who sent the bread from heaven. In John chapter 6, Jesus has the audacity to call himself the bread of life sent from heaven. And he's saying that the manna in the Old Testament was really, it was just a, a foreshadowing of the real bread of life. The manna satisfied their hunger for 40 years, but we need more than that. Jesus came from heaven, the bread of life, and he's, his body was broken so that our chains could be broken. We have to remember how he set us free. Second thing is we need to remember how he sustains us. So they got their bellies full of food and they keep walking and they walk into this place called Rephidim and there's no water now. Now there's no water. And I don't know about you. I know some people like they can eat their whole meal without drinking. I don't understand that. Like they literally eat their entire meal and never take a sip of their water. I keep the waiter or waitress busy. I mean, that poor person is running back and forth. I'm just, eventually, this is what happens 50% of the time. They just end up putting a pitcher on our table because, like, I can't keep up with your thirst. So here's a picture, a pitcher of water. But here they are. They've been eaten, and now they're thirsty, and there's no, nothing to drink. And they begin to argue with Moses again, saying, give us water to drink. Moses says, why are you testing the Lord? Why are you quarreling with me? They begin grumbling again. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? with our children and our livestock. Here's where we see that they have livestock with them. And let's look at verse five in Exodus chapter 17. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. We have to remember how he set us free, but we also have to remember how he sustains us. And the Israelites, in their complaining and in their grumbling, they were believing the lie that the God who brought them this far would not bring them to the end. That the God who had carried them out of Egypt would not carry them into the promised land. But we know from Scripture that our God is faithful to complete the work that he begins. Philippians 1.6, a very well-known verse says that I am certain that God, who began the good work in you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day of Christ Jesus' return. What this means is that the one who fed your hunger will also satisfy your thirst. He will sustain you. Listen to this. He saved your soul. He will conform you into the image of his son. He brought you to his table. He will faithfully feed you. He pulled you out of chaos. He will provide rest for your soul. He, he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He will not let you be lost. He purchased you with his blood. He will complete his work of redemption in you. He adopted you into his family. You will have the inheritance of a son or a daughter. He tore you from the grip of the enemy, and now you are secure in his hands. And according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, now nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. And some of you, I think, this morning need to hear this, that the one who fed your hunger, he will satisfy your thirst. He will sustain you. He is a provider. Remember how he 
sustains us. In fact, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that Jesus Christ not just sustains you and me, but that Jesus Christ sustains the entire universe with a lot of effort, by rolling up his sleeve, by working really hard. No, just with the power of his word or the word of his power. This is the God that we serve. He sustains us. He will carry us through. Some of you feel like you are in the middle of something, and I'm just trying to encourage your heart this morning. He's sustaining you. He's going to bring you through. Now, something, before we get to the last point and close, one thing that we learn about the nature of God's provision in the book of Exodus is that God provides in multiple ways. And this is what I mean. Sometimes, sometimes God provides very supernaturally, but sometimes God provides naturally. And sometimes it's a combination of the two. Now, in the story before, they didn't just get manna. They also got quail. Quails is exactly what you're thinking. It's a, it's a little bird. And they said, you're going to walk out, and there's just going to be quail on the ground, and you can, just, you can have some meat. Now, they didn't have quail for 40 years. This was a specific miracle that happened a couple times. But I was reading a commentary by a man named Philip Graham Riken, and listen to what he says about quail. I, di- I didn't know this. He said, quail are migratory. Each year, they pass over Sinai in the spring and fall, and they fly low, carried along by the wind. When they stop, they roost on the ground. The Egyptians trapped the birds with nets. There's evidence of this in history. However, listen, when quails are exhausted from their travels, you don't even need nets. When quails are exhausted from their travels, they can be captured by hand. It's not surprising, then, that the Israelites found quail in the wilderness. This is a natural provision, but was it only natural? No, because God's provision of quail was also miraculous. The birds came that very evening, just at the time God had promised. They also came in astonishing numbers, enough to feed a multitude of millions. According to the psalmist in Psalm 78, 27, he rained meat down on them like dust. That sounds awesome. Uh, Flying birds like sand on the seashore. The quail came to the right place at the right time and in the right quantity. It was a miraculous providence, both in its timing and its extent. God did not give his people quail every day. The miracle was repeated only one other time after the Israelites left Sinai. And the book of Numbers describes that a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them all down to the camp to about three feet above the ground. And as far as a day's walk in any direction, it's just quail just chilling in the air, three feet high everywhere you could look. Now, what does this all mean? Did you notice that when Pastor Rob was preaching about the parting of the Red Sea, that God used a, a wind to part the sea? It said that, I don't have it in front of me, but I know it says in chapter 14 that God caused a strong wind. I forget if it says an easterly wind or something like that, but a strong wind to blow. Now, here's my question when I read that. God, come on. Why do you need the wind? You're God. Just boom. Water gone, clear. God, why do you need the quails to have this migratory uh, lifestyle that brings them literally right to the feet of the Israelites so they can just grab them and eat them? Why? You're God. Just make them drop, right? I think what we learn here is that God wants to provide, to, uh, provide for us in ways that are both natural and supernatural. And the reason why we need to notice that is because we tend to be very grateful for the supernatural provision, but not as grateful for the natural provision. We think, well, I kind of work to earn this money. Well, using what? The brain God gave you, the strength God gave you, the ability and the opportunities that God has provided for you. Well, I just kind of got over that cold on my own. With what? 
the body that God created, putting the right things inside of you to fight those sort of sicknesses off. Oh, then my blood just clots on its own. Well, how come? Because of God's creation. Well, God didn't heal me, but the doctors helped me. Using what? Their intelligence and their technology, all gifts from God. And if we're going to be a thankful, grateful people, we need to realize that God provides in all sorts of ways. And whether God heals you through the way he has created your body or through the medical insights of a doctor or a nurse or whether he heals you supernaturally, no matter which way he chooses to heal you, we need to be a thankful people saying, God, thank you for your providing because you sustain us in so many different ways. Be looking out and be thankful for both kinds of provision. Now, all of scripture is ultimately about Jesus. And so we look at this story, when you look in the Old Testament, all the heroes are eventually going to be eclipsed by the greater hero, Jesus. All the prophets point to the true and better prophet. All the priests point to the only priest that actually could do what we needed to be done. And all the kings and all of their failures point us to our need for a true king. But what about this story? And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says something that would have, I think, really surprised the church at Corinth. He's recounting this story, and he mentions the rock that is struck. Because what, what Moses does is he strikes the rock with that rod, and water comes out. And Paul says, you know who the rock was? The rock was Christ. Now, how does that make any sense? The rock was Christ. And here's what we see, that Jesus... The rock, in a way, even foreshadows Christ. Jesus is the rock that was struck with the rod of God's justice. Why? So that streams of living water could flow out from him into the deserts of our hearts and into the desert of our lives. So we thank Jesus because ultimately he is the one who sustains us. And then my last point this morning, and we're going to close, is this. Not only do we remember how he set us free, how he sustains us, but we have to remember how he saves us. In the second half of chapter 17, we find a battle. Now, this is the first time we see the people of Israel in a battle. They're going to be in lots of fights in Exodus, especially in Joshua and in Judges. But this is the first battle for the Israelites that we know of. And the Amalekites are the enemy. Now, the Amalekites are a nomadic people just kind of roaming around. And they trace their roots all the way back to Esau. And if you are familiar with the story of the Old Testament, Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. We're not sure why the Amalekites attacked the Israelites, but there were long-standing ethnic tensions between these two tribes, and maybe they were trying to protect their land. Maybe they were threatened by a couple million people moving towards their water source. It could have been a lot of different things. But later in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we, Moses recounts this moment, and he talks about how the Amalekites did not fight the warriors of Israel. They attacked the helpless and the defenseless, the stragglers, those that were in the back. So this is not fair war, so to speak. This is a terrorist sort of action against defenseless women and defenseless children who are kind of the slower moving people in the back of the pack. In Deuteronomy 25, Moses says that's who the Amalekites attacked. And so Moses says to Joshua, choose some men and go out and fight the Amalekites. And and, and Joshua, this is the first, I think this is the first time we meet Joshua. And then Moses says to him, I'm going to go stand on top of that hill. I'm going to watch. And I'm thinking Joshua must have been like, oh, sure, Moses. Yeah, great. I'll grab the men, we'll go fight, you go up on the hill. You're the delegator, we're the workers. We get it, right? So Moses goes up on the hill, he's with Aaron and he's with her, and he's over, he's watching this battle, and the the battle begins, and look at what happens beginning in verse 11. It says that whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. That means they were winning the battle. But whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. That's interesting. Moses' hands are up and the Israelites are winning. Moses' hands are down and the Israelites are losing. This is like, 
the original, this is like the first ever video game. You know, you're, you're controlling what's happening, only it's real life. Verse 12 says, but Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. How did God save his people in this battle? How did God save the Israelites? I don't think they were prepared for this. I don't think they were trained in warfare when they were slaves in Egypt. I doubt they were allowed to touch a sword for 400 years. How did they learn to fight? How did God save them in this unexpected first battle? Well, what we're going to see in closing is this. He saved them the same way he saves us. When we look at Moses, we see two things. We see first that Moses was an advocate. This is a picture of prayer. Moses sitting on the hill, lifting up his hands. This is a picture of him and Aaron and her coming together, two or three gathered together, God's presence in their midst, praying and lifting up their prayers and lifting up their hands. This is not magic. God doesn't do magic. This isn't mysticism. This is an advocate lifting up his hands in prayer and worship to God and God responding as he's faithful to do. And what we see here is a picture of Moses as our advocate, but you and I have a true and better advocate, Jesus Christ, who died and was resurrected and has ascended to the right-hand side of the Father. And you know what he does now. He sits at the right-hand side of the Father forever to make intercession for you and me. He is our advocate. He's praying for you this morning. He's interceding for you. Some of you, there's a struggle in your heart this morning to receive this word and to respond to this word. And I just want to tell you that Jesus is in heaven right now, and he's praying for you. He's praying that your heart would be shaped that your heart would be changed, that you would respond to what the Spirit is speaking through his word this morning. And for some of you, this will be a very comforting thought. Jesus is not praying for you on the basis of your performance this week. Jesus is not praying for you based on your goodness, based on your righteousness, based on your efforts, based on your religiosity, based on your ability to get it right. Jesus is not praying for you on the basis of your performance record. He's praying for you. He's advocating for you on the basis of his performance record. Righteous in your place. And he's saying, see my son and my daughter? They're righteous. They're perfectly righteous. It's as if they lived the life that I lived because they've placed their hope and trust in who I am and what I've done. So we see Jesus here as an advocate And we see Moses here as an advocate. But the second way we see Moses is this. He's not just our advocate. He's also the mediator. He's the mediator. In some way, his actions had direct impact on the battle. I don't don't understand it. God never does this again. I don't think God ever does this again. This is unique. But somehow Moses' actions on that hill have direct impact. So he is a mediator. What he's doing has impact on his people. And of course, in Jesus, we have a true and better mediator, one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. I like to wonder what it was like to be a soldier in that battle. Probably scared, terrified, having never done it before, holding a sword for the first time. You see these trained uh, nomadic warriors coming at you and you begin to fight, and all of a sudden you're like, I don't, how do I know how to do this? How am I doing this? How are we winning this battle? And you look up the hill, and you see your leader, Moses, your mediator, and his hands are up. And you begin to advance, and you begin to prevail. And then you begin to struggle, and you begin to back up, and you look up, and you see Moses' hands are down. And maybe somebody in the battlefield put it together. If his hands are up, we're going to win, and if his hands are down, we're going to lose. 
But then Aaron and Hur came and they studied his hands and they held him up and they began to prevail and prevail. And this is what I would have been doing if I was a warrior out there. I would have kept looking up the hill. Are his hands up? Then let's fight. Are his hands up? Then we're going to win. And every time we see Moses with his hands up, you know what it did for the warriors? It filled their hearts with courage and strength and hope. But what about you and me? When we are in our battles, when we are in our struggles and we feel unprepared and we feel like we can't possibly win, what do we do? Well, we do the exact same thing. We look up the hill at our mediator and we see that his hands were raised for us. Moses' hands were lifted by his friends in loving support, but Jesus' hands on the cross were stretched wide, torn apart, not by his friends, but by his enemies, so that he could be our great mediator. And whatever circumstances you find yourself in today, whatever battle you find yourself in, look up the hill, look at the cross, look at your advocate, look at your mediator, and you know what it'll do for you? It'll fill your heart with strength, with courage, and with hope. We don't lose because he didn't lose. Our battle has already been won. And we need to remember these things because a forgetful heart is a complaining heart. But a heart that chooses to remember is a heart that will always rejoice in every circumstance. We remember God knowing that he remembered us. Let me read this verse to you and then we'll pray. Psalm 136, I'm reading this to you from the message because I love how it says it. Verses 23 to 26, it says that God remembered us when we were down. His love never quits. He rescued us from the trampling boot. His love never quits. Takes care of everyone in time of need. His love never quits. Thank God who did it all. His love never quits. He didn't do some of it. He didn't do part of it. He didn't get you halfway to the finish line. Our great advocate, our great mediator, he did everything. His work is sufficient. His work is complete. We're not asked to achieve righteousness. We are invited to receive righteousness. The work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we see him winning for us. It'll give you the hope and strength and courage through any battle you're in as we remember how he set us free as we remember how he sustains us and remember how he saves us. Let's pray together this morning.